Now I think we're live. All right. Well, let's get this started. Maybe we'll even tweet it out. See if anyone's interested in no code, crypto, and the intersection of the creator economy, which becomes the ownership economy, which I should give credit to Jesse Walden for coining that term. Uh, let's do, let's tweet it out and ownership economy. All right. On the call in. Sorry, I'm tweeting right now because it said you should tweet. Um, all right. And we should be good. A lot of exciting stuff going on. Uh, it's particularly in the creator economy, but also in the the no-code world. Um, some amazing products I've come across, and, uh, specifically the past couple of days. I mean, really, really amazing. Um, but some, some top news. Um, well, first of all, the in case you didn't know, you are interested in the creator economy. Um, there's an event in Arizona, uh, that's being held. That's on, I believe May 2nd. Um, and I believe it's sponsored or it's created by the tilt, um, which is like the tilt.com, um, who actually the founder I've come to learn is from Cleveland. Um, and that's where I am from. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, so live show, so interesting. This is such a unique platform. And I can't believe how many, like, really pretty incredible, you know, audio content creators um, have come here uh, to call in. And I don't know why it's surprising, but I don't know. It just is. Um, so right now, after four minutes, I'm the only one in here. But I want to invite others to speak, to come join, and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully don't get disconnected. Um, okay. So we can possibly add a speaker. Let's see what happens. Bear with me. Bear with me. So, much harder than I thought. Oh, no, there we go. Okay, looks like it's fine. Looks like it's fine. That's cool. So we can do speaking. Sorry, I'm just trying to get everyone uh, aware of the breaking news that this is happening right now. Because this is awesome. Just awesome. So I can only, interesting, all right, takes a while to like go back, hmm. very interesting, it's not working well, I can't invite people, it's like stuck, I feel like it's frozen, oh there we go, all right, we're back, oh, this is, I'm amazed that how, like the adoption of this platform is kind of mind-blowing if you look at the people that are coming here and i find it to be a really weird 
we are fucking at like for podcasting and audio content creation. Um, it's just, I don't know. It's just not user friendly. I don't think I'm curious what other people think, but I don't think the UX is like that amazing. Um, in fact, I do think a lot of people probably consume st- still on a laptop and stuff. And I don't think you can even talk if it's on a laptop. No, I never use a laptop. Um, I actually, I do too much work on my phone where it's to the point that it's actually, um, I actually have not diminishing returns, but I have, I am so non, not efficient because I overuse my phone. Even when my laptop will be like sitting right next to me, I will still choose sometimes consciously to use my phone to do all this work where it would be finished in 10 minutes if it was on a laptop and on my phone, it'll take me 25 minutes and it's really weird, but it's become like a habit that I can't break. And I know it's less efficient. I just really do not like laptops anymore. I, I don't know. I just, I, I just can't believe we're at, we're not at the day yet where everything is, can be done via mobile or an iPad or something. And I, we're definitely not there. Um, but, um, that leads me to the creator economy. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of cool stuff going on and this is called the ownership economy. And I'm going to, I'm going to, for anyone who hasn't heard the term, the ownership economy, I, I believe it's one of the most, definitely one of the most important, but in terms of technological innovation that provides equal access to opportunity, which is how the world should function, not equal outcomes. It's equal access to opportunity. And so whether you're, you know, born in a bad area in, in, in the middle of Africa, or you're part of the richest family in New York city, uh, everyone should have, both people should have access to the same starting point from their phone, you know, probably for free and let the best man and woman win man or woman win. That's how the game should be played. You should not be excluded because you are low. You have no control over that. Um, So I I just, I I don't know what's going on with my phone, but um, it's so important to have equal access opportunity and then literally let the market play itself out and the best, what kind of user experience is this? It's probably my phone, to be honest. Um, it's amazing, actually. Like, if you use, if you have an iPhone, I don't know how it is with Android. I'm kind of curious. But if you use an iPhone, like, per- regularly, like, you know, let's say you're a creator or, you know, you're an entrepreneur, whatever. You do a lot of work from mobile, which I think more and more people do now. Um, of course, you can't do everything from mobile. Or you could be like me and do less efficient stuff on mobile because you're just hopeful for the day that mobile is the main platform. But that's just a, it's just not the – you should use whatever the best tool is at that moment. But anyways, with Apple, if you use it regular consistently, after a year, if you go to your battery health, like you can go to your settings, battery health, and like you can look at – 
um, the percentage that your battery can charge to, like the maximum percentage. So like when you get the phone, ideally it starts at 100% and you'll recharge it and it'll go to 100. Then then the max or like the ceiling can only reach 96% charge. Mine is at 80% or 82%. After a, a year of, of an iPhone 12 Pro Max, that's a bunch of horse shit. Like that... Is that one of those things, honestly, that Apple's like putting in the phone so you have to renew it or get like another phone, like what they do with the software, where you install this update if you have an older phone and it makes your phone slower, which I think they were proven guilty of, and uh, kind of forced you to buy a new iPhone. Um, It's just ridiculous, to be honest. It's, It's absurd. And this is not at all uh, related to the creator economy, but it is in a lot of ways because most creators are using, you know, the most frictionless, easy to use tools that enable them to create. So what I mean by that is in order to create to the, your, you know, optimal abilities to put out the art that you can be most proud of, I guess, internally, you need to have a frictionless experience of how you create that content all the way to distributing that content. And it's not so easy, except with the advent of like Substack, you know, but particularly for newsletters, the podcast, I'm in the beta for the podcast video too. Maybe that's not a beta anymore. Um, podcasting on spot, uh, on Substack is an awesome, like, idea and i love it and i'm trying everything to make it work but it's it was publishing wrong with the rss feed it just wasn't a good experience and i also got a message from anchor.fm which by the way if you compare that to all the other tools like simplecast uh transistor fm and you know some are, are different here and there um or you know buzzsprout uh you know there's a ton uh resonates really interesting uh, now Riverside FM, which will lead to this, um, which is what I use to record my podcast, Riverside.fm. So Anchor.fm was the first one I ever came across uh, years ago. And I thought it, it sucked uh, as far as the app. And I still don't think it's that great. Um, it's very just simple. However, Spotify bought them. And Spotify is creating... There's, they're creating a YouTube marketplace, but for audio content creation. How, and on top of that, they are creating the ad product that Facebook created for their platform that made them a whatever, $600 billion company. Because Facebook ads, as I think everyone you know, who knows anything about, uh, reaching relevant people and selling and, you know, you know, B2B, B2C doesn't matter, knows that Facebook ads for the longest time were the most underpriced and highest impact advertising. And to this day, if you know how to do it, it works 100%. It absolutely works. Like if it's not working, it's because you suck or you're not good at it. Like that would be the only reason because it fucking works. Um I now would argue LinkedIn is the sweet spot. And I've, I've actually been saying that for a while. 
And there's a few reasons why LinkedIn is so powerful. LinkedIn is really a fascinating platform. Just think about this. So over, if you make $60,000 per year in salary, you're in the top 1% of the world. Just if you make 60,000 US dollars, you're in the top 1%. With inflation, it's probably like 240,000 now. No, I'm just kidding. But $60,000, you're in the top 1%. LinkedIn, over uh, 50% of the entire member, of all the members on LinkedIn, 50% make $80,000 or more. Think about that. Half the platform makes $80,000 or more. That's a very interesting, and they have 500 million users. Like This is not a small platform. And people regularly engage, and they mostly engage in a B2B or business professional, or like you're in that mindset when you log on to LinkedIn, like you're trying to find, it's almost like, oh, this is the place where what I read is going to be truthful. You know, that's probably not even true, but you, you know, you get a different vibe when you're on Facebook, like, oh yeah, this is, uh, who knows, you know, like it, questionable content um, or things are removed and stuff. And I'm sure that happens with LinkedIn, but you just go in with a mindset that you, you trust it more. Um, maybe that's a branding play. However, you can now with, and, and so they have this thing called the social selling index. That's how they rate creators on their platform on LinkedIn. So you can, if you have Sales Navigator, I don't know if you can without Sales Navigator, but if you do have Sales Navigator, first of all, if you don't have Sales Navigator and you either own a business or you need sales or you're a salesman and you're not using Sales Navigator, LinkedIn Sales Navigator, that is by far the most valuable, useful tool for selling anything. And when I say selling, I mean literally just reaching people, whether your intent is to educate, whether your intent is to just network, whether your intent is to be more involved with nonprofits. Um, it is it, it is unbelievably fascinating that I get over, so I get, so my SSI or my social selling index, and I've never sold anything on LinkedIn. I don't sell. I, I try and educate and it results in a sale many times, but my true authentic intent is not to sell and that I don't even know how to sell. I just know how to kind of tell the truth or what I believe is the optimal, you know, solution for, you know, whatever we're trying to solve. And on LinkedIn, uh, for some reason, uh, you know, maybe it's 12 years of friending every CEO on the platform because, I thought like in 2010 or 11, like, hey, you know, it's probably not always going to be possible to be like a first degree connection with uh, like Elon Musk and literally just send him a uh, like a direct message email, basically, that will probably be seen uh, that won't last forever. So I just for like Every day I'd open my phone for the last decade and I would friend, you know, the top, I don't know, investors and all this stuff and everyone would connect. So it's funny. You can only have 30,000 connections, which I'm going to ask them about. And it's weird. 
that you can only have 30,000 um, because, you know, a lot of other people you're trying to connect with now and it just gets rejected and it, it makes, I don't even know where 30,000 comes from. Like what kind of random number is that? However, it's, I can't tell you how many, so because when you're in the social selling index and they rank you, I guess, in the top 1% or the less than 1%, which they put me in, even though for the social selling index, I have never sold anything, right? It tells you it's because engagement it tells you where you are relative to the whole LinkedIn community, what your rating is in your network. So if you, if you have sales navigator, you can click on your icon in the top, right? And uh, you can, I believe you click, uh, it might say social selling index or, you know, profile details. And I've always been in the less than 1%, like the highest of highest. And, uh, you know, I don't know why, but I have been. And so I'll post something organically. And let's say it's a, recently I posted a creator economy uh, white paper uh, or presentation that was created by um, Linktree. So if you haven't seen the 2022 uh, Creator Economy Report that just came out from Linktree, they did a really, really good job. Um, you could just, you know, Google it. You could check it out on my uh, uh, LinkedIn if you really want to go do that. Um, it's probably easier just to go to Linktree. But um, it's a really, really good report. It It is good. Um, and I post a lot of things like that because I – I personally like, you know, those type of presentations and PDFs and stuff like that. But I also had this gut feeling that I'm not alone and that other people just like white papers, whether they consume it all or not. It's just something about downloading that document and like feeling like you have all this knowledge and then you never look at it. But whatever. Besides the point, I digress. Um, And I'll get... So I'll post and uh, I will get tens of thousands of views on organic posts every single time. And like, that's crazy organic reach. But that's when you were, so like when you were a Facebook company, let's say, and you had a Facebook page in 2010 and you would post, you could easily reach hundreds of thousands of people for free, millions of people for free. In fact, the very early, like, you know, B2C e-commerce companies and, you know, anyone who sold direct to the consumer on Facebook and had an early Facebook page, just by the sheer reach or uh, organic reach until they started locking it down with paid ads, which is what LinkedIn's going to do. And it's it's going to happen soon. Um, In fact, it's already starting to change. Um, Is you essentially just had to have a product that was okay or a product that uh you know wasn't that great it was just that it was so powerful to reach the exact person all across the world like your target audience at scale for free like it was very difficult to lose um and then of course as it things progressed your reach gets less 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 and i believe now Facebook's reach where, you know, it used to be like 90%, then 50%. I think it's 4% now of organic reach. Four. Okay. Over two thirds. uh, I just heard this today. Over two thirds of uh, people on social media uh, or people on the internet are on Facebook. Two thirds. Now compare that to Twitter. And 
less than like like five percent are on Twitter. It's like not even close to what it like how disproportionate it is of how many people are on Facebook or have a Facebook profile versus people active on Twitter. It's not even close. Like it's three hundred times as much or thirty times as much, something crazy. And but if you think about it, and especially with the hot topic of Elon buying Twitter, which is <laughs> which is the most billionaire move <laughs> I've I may have ever seen. Like that I've always wondered, like when you have that much money, like why don't you just like it doesn't matter, like why don't you just go buy something cool or just like why they don't make any crazy extravagant purchases like just oh you know i don't like the company i'm gonna buy the company and he did it like whether you agree or disagree that takes some cojones and (laughs) that is amazing the guy owns twitter now um now what's more influential on society twitter or facebook now when you go on to facebook you're probably if you go on to facebook um you probably are doing it to see and and engage with family and friends or, you know, first, like very close people, right? Uh, Or see what's going on in their lives. Um, On LinkedIn, you're uh, you're going on to see what's going on in the business world or whatever specific niche you're in, whether that's computer software, whether that's uh, the mining industry, whether that's, you know, business, you know, professional services, anything. You're kind of going in to get an update on your uh, whatever your specialty is or what you enjoy the most. And you have this really like kind of narrow focus, which also makes it more powerful. And then Twitter, I believe a lot of people use it as the ultimate news curator. And when I say news, I mean anything that you enjoy or that's relevant to you or that you want to read about, like it's your personalized news news feed. And like, think about this in the future, everybody is, in the future, it's already kind of here, I guess a little bit with Twitter, but everybody's news feed, like this whole idea of mainstream media being deployed to like hundreds of millions of people all at once, you know, with three different channels and saying whatever, that's never been the case in human history to broadcast at such scale the same message like that's never happened ever i mean and think about it in the past it was all very hyper focused like um localized community tribes you don't just blast the the whole world with a message that never occurred until the you know the 50s or you know it's the 1900s and so it's really a counterintuitive but seems normal example of how media should be distributed because it's all we know, except this is the only time in history it's been like that. Um, I think whether, you know, whatever you think about, you know, the mainstream media doesn't matter. I think we can all agree that humans are biased. Uh, in fact, it's impossible for you to be objective about yourself because you are yourself. So therefore you are subjective. So, you know, whether we're not, I don't care about the agendas of all, of all these, you know, different networks and stuff. It's just, you want to take in all the information possible from a variety of sources, particularly those you don't agree with 
and triangulate to come to your own conclusion based on your own research. And that's how you formulate your opinion. Unfortunately, most people just kind of echo what some, someone else's research, but they didn't really do the research and that becomes a mess. So Twitter with no prominence on definitely social media, but on the internet compared to Facebook and LinkedIn in terms of the amount of people, the size of the network, uh, the valuation of the company, everything is minuscule. But does it not maybe have the largest impact on politics, on society, on culture? I mean, it, it, it's the most influential, but it's the most, it's the smallest or it's the one that, it's the only company that really did not grow during this huge bull run where everybody went up to the right and Twitter somehow magically like accomplished the unfathomable, which was, we're not going to go up to the right. We're just going to stay flat. <laughs> like they're the only, like you just had to be a business in the last 10 years to go up into the right. Twitter didn't yet. Twitter is absolutely revered as the platform where people go to for their news or for what they trust. Like it's a, it's a curated newsfeed that, you know, I don't know how much their algorithm plays into introducing new content, but if you follow, you know, just like cats, I, I imagine you'll only see cats. Um, and what's powerful about what Elon did. And I was just thinking about this today because I actually think this is a much larger deal than I even originally thought. And that is Twitter is the public square. That is where people, uh, maybe because it's the easiest way to reach uh, or get the attention of a celebrity or a, a billionaire or, you know, a news outlet. Um, maybe it is the most efficient way to do that. So that's why Twitter is the most prominent yet the smallest and cannot seem to figure out profitability in any way, shape or form. Um, but the reason why this is such a massive deal is something's going to happen. And I think this is my, what's going to happen. And I think this is a really big deal and it's going to be really interesting. And I think it's going to be very eye-opening where Elon owns Twitter. So Elon is going to understand the history of what's been going on there, how decisions are made, the documentation. They're going to go through everything. I mean, he's taken over the company. And they've obviously done some really fishy or inconsistent things. And whether it's documented or past email, like this is all going to be uncovered. It's like in a vault right now, and they're going to uncover whatever wrongdoings. And knowing Elon, he's going to make it all public. And I can almost guarantee there are going to be stories of, you know, of something we knew that happened, you know, someone got banned, let's say a year ago. And then we find out internally what happened that got him banned. And it's going to stir up massive thoughts of, I think, corruption, 
and just issues, no matter what side you're on. I mean, it doesn't matter. And Elon's going to bring it to the forefront and make it like, instead of just fixing it, he's going to make it public because that's kind of who he is. And, uh, you know, it's kind of his, it's his belief to provide all the information for everyone to make the best decision for themselves. But what's going to be exposed, I actually think is going to be enormous. I think it's going to be so severely damaging to certain individuals, um, most of whom are probably just standard Twitter employees and, you know, it'll only last a few days and whatnot, but leadership or board members or people from the outside with political influence, like this is all going to be uncovered. And I think that they were really just protecting that vault. They didn't want any of this. It's kind of like my theory on like Epstein, uh, you know, that the, the creepy guy who has, you know, Josh or what's his name? Uh, uh, whatever Epstein, the, the guy who has pictures with like the prince and, you know, Bill Clinton and was known to like traffic girls and whatnot. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And yet he decided to hang himself in prison one day, you know, like, do I believe that? I am not a conspiracy guy, but I think he was most likely killed. <laughs> like that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Right. But my point is, is that Twitter already is the go-to source, social media or not, for anyone, definitely in the political arena, definitely in the mainstream media arena, but really any celebrity who has, you know, a platform, a voice, like LeBron, think athletes, like their tweets reach a lot of people and have a lot of influence. And we've seen this unforeseen kind of consequence of of highly centralized, um, you know, big tech platforms that are now truthfully the fabric of society in terms of literally communication, like, you know, like we would in a village 300 years ago talking to one another. Like, that is just not the way, sure, that exists. However, it's all happening on these networks. And these networks are clearly deciding, you know, making choices as to what to allow and not allow. And a lot of that's subjective. And, you know, that's why it's controversial. Now, Twitter, Twitter's practices have been the most uh, controversial. I think we could all agree for sure. And the stuff that's going to come out, I believe, um, with Twitter's past decision-making and stuff like that, um, as it all will be exposed now. I mean, that's a, Elon owns it, um, is going to worry some people. Like it's, it, the first thing that comes to mind is like, uh, you know, people's thoughts when they heard like Snowden, you know, say, you know, what he said and, you know, it turned out to be true. I think we're going to find things we don't like very much that's been happening with Twitter the past 10 years, um, which is good and bad. Good because it's going to change, uh, especially if it's exposed. But two, how much power these 
these single platforms have in this world, not the U.S., in the world. And it, it's actually, you've got to applaud someone, whether you agree with their views or not, that's irrelevant to the point, that puts their money where their mouth is. And in this case, to the tune, yes, he's the world's richest man. He has, you know, tons of money. Does he need to get involved in this? Absolutely not, right? This is more of a headache, if anything. But someone who stays true to their core principles, their core beliefs, which are flexible, by the way, and change over time, but stick to what they believe is right and then act on it. Act on it. Most, a lot of people, people love thinking. People love ideas. People love predicting. People love worrying about something that hasn't happened yet. People love, love to just imagining what the future is going to be like, even just, just let it be, let things turn out, prepare as best you can and let it turn out how it turns out. You can't control, you can control two things in this world, two things. You can only control two things. And if you believe this to be true, think about how much of your brain energy is focused on other shit. Ready? You could control one, your thoughts and two, your actions. You cannot control anything else. So being worried about what Charlie's going to do or what Justin's going to do or, oh, my God, this conversation tomorrow, the anticipation of that conversation is what's going to be way more painful than the actual event itself. The actual events themselves, honestly, are never. I very rarely hear someone who's so worked up about something that's going to happen. And then when it happens, very rarely do I hear him get, oh my God, it was so much worse than I ever thought. No, someone who's concerned as hell about it after it happens, they're they're like, oh my God, it was, it was nothing. Like why, why did I spend the last three months worrying about this every day and waking up in the middle of the night? Like, I don't know. That's a good question. I was trying to tell you that. Um, And so you, I don't know why we like it must come from the fact that humans just don't are not comfortable with um, uncertainty. I think that's the core foundation of it. I think that we need, we feel like we need to have certain outcomes. We need to know, you know, with a hundred percent probability of what's going to happen. We need to be totally in control of our lives. Like there can't be any variables that, you know, we didn't prepare for except the only plan, the only part of a plan that will always go according to plan is that the plan doesn't go according to plan. Like that's it. Like that, that's a fact. Like anything that's ever been planned that I've seen, and, and this is why planning just fascinates me, why people plan so much, which is that plan never goes as planned. That's, that's actually a consistency. Like that, that is almost a 100% fact of every plan. It doesn't go according to plan. So um, I just think what what's going on, I, I feel like what's going on in the world is just really weird. And there's a lot of good things too. And the good things are actually great things is you, you have crypto or blockchain technology or you know uh, Web3 in the background 
while this is all going on with unbelievable innovation, which is, I mean, think about how monumental this is, which is never in history have people been able to be the custodians of their own wealth. And what do I mean by that? I mean that they don't need an intermediary. They don't need any uh, institution to protect their assets, well, quote unquote, protect their assets, uh, aka Lehman Brothers and you know, who knows. But um, And they need to go and have every transaction approved and monitored and whatnot. But if I trust Justin or I trust Charlie and they trust me and we want to send money to each other, well, in the U.S., not many people who have a bank account and, you know, average America uh, doesn't, you know, sending money. Sure. Is it is ACH and all that stuff like the best? Uh, no. I mean, ACH is a payment rails that was literally made in like 1979 and has never been upgraded. Like we're using payment rails from the 70s. So it's obviously not the most efficient way just by the sheer fact that it's from the 70s um, and obviously not the most secure. That's not the point. The point is, is that with all this crazy stuff going on, what people are missing and why the ownership economy is so important, first to understand it, and then why it's important and how it applies to you, is my sole purpose for at least for as far as I could see, which is reaching as many people as possible. Um, And that is that. I've seen so many times in my life, and it's sad as shit, to be honest. I've seen so many times where people are 30 years into their job, 20 years into their job, a lot of the baby boomers, like, like, like often, like a lot. And they fucking hated what they did. Like, they, they hated it. Like, oh, they couldn't wait till retirement. Like, they couldn't wait to be 65, you know? Like, and in my mind, growing up, I was like, this is so weird. Like, wouldn't you want to enjoy everything? Like when you're 24, 32, 44, or do you really want to go, you know, travel the world at 78, you know, with a cane? Like, that's odd. Um, it's like, it's like, ah, you've been duped. Um, and so, it, so there's nothing, there's very little that's more sad in term in context of like day-to-day normal life, like the war and all this stuff, the worst but like in day-to-day normal life, people spend a significant amount of time at work or doing work, whatever that is, right? I think it might be over 50%. And if you include sleeping, if you just do time awake that's not working versus like working and sleeping, it's weight, it's, it's an astronomical number. And the fact that for all that time, people fucking hate what they do or really dislike the people they work with or do it literally just because they need, you know, the money to, to, to survive. And I, I understand that not everyone has the capability to easily, you know, get a a, a well-paying job or, you know, uh, get, um, you know, sometimes you're in a position where you have to do something you don't want to do. And that's life. And that should be life. And life is whoever said life's supposed to be easy 
I don't know who that person was, but life's supposed to be fucking hard and that's fine. And in fact, the, there's a, so this is a science too. And from Anna Lemke, who's the lead, um, uh, she's addiction specialist at Stanford uh, School of Medicine. She's really, she wrote Dopamine Nation, a good book I recommend. And there's this, they just discovered this pleasure and pain scale and in humans and the pleasure and pain, uh, they're inverses of each other. And they have to equal each other. They have to balance out in the long run. It has to be exactly 50-50 in the long run. Okay? Now, what that means is, is that people who go through a horrible adversity or something that's really hard and reach a really, really, really low point, let's say, right? Lower than a trauma that, that is not experienced by, you know, very many people. And so it's ultra low. If they're able to get through that situation and get through that, that adversity, which, you know, a lot of people don't, but the ones that do, because the pleasure and pain scale have to equal each other, the person whose pain drops so far means that their potential for how much pleasure and how much, uh, how much, um, how high their pleasure can be or how high that feeling can get is disproportionately higher than anyone else who has not gone through that trauma because they don't have to reach because they can't reach that eye point because it will all you won't be able to balance it out and so the lower depths you go as ironic and weird as this sounds the higher and better things you can achieve and it's no coincidence that people who go through really really hard shit and really really tough times like look at people that you look up to or uh, adore or respect, like how many of them in their childhoods or adult life went through something horrible. And now like they're, you know, doing what they love and they're a megastar. Like think of like the rock, for example, like homeless with his mother, tough times, getting cut from his dream of playing football. Now he's the biggest movie star, if not one of the biggest, just well, humans also on the planet. And uh, had all these difficult times. The adversity is a good thing. But for some reason, in at least American culture, we have this mindset that you should not feel pain, that humans should never feel anything bad. You know, like if you feel like, oh, you have a head, take an Advil. Uh, oh my, you, you have a brute. Oh my God, buddy, we, we got to put uh, something on it so, you know, you don't feel... God forbid you feel pain. But by doing that, you're actually making it worse off for yourself. And it, it's almost like cleaning, like if you're a neat freak, not a neat freak, but like a germ freak, let's say, and you have everything spotless clean and you wipe everything down and you Clorox and you've got all these chemicals all over the place and stuff, you're more prone to get sick than someone who plays with dirt and outside and gets messy and disgusting. Why? Because playing with the dirt and playing, you know, with nature and stuff like that, as opposed to being spick and span, perfectly clean, uh, is what builds your immune system and your body to better prepare for these, uh, you know, for these ever-changing, uh, I don't want to say viruses, but like, you know, bacterial infections, whatever it might be, okay? Um, it's good to get dirty. And it, we have this fascination of being super clean. Don't be too clean. Like, 
I, I mean, from what I've seen is like, I literally, um, this is bad, but the truth is like during COVID, like I, um, listen, I, it's a bad situation, all that stuff. Um, I just never thought that, uh, at a 32 year old, healthy, uh, male, I did not, I was like, there's no way this is how I'm going out. Like no way. And so, um, you know, I would, I wouldn't wear, you know, I didn't think the mask were, I didn't wear the mask. I didn't wash my hands. I didn't do anything. I never even got COVID. Now, does that mean that's a good example for anyone else? Hell no, absolutely not. In fact, most things I do, I highly recommend you do the opposite and you'll probably be very, very successful as a human being. Anyways, with that said, is my girlfriend, on the other hand, was the opposite, which was don't go out. Like I would go outside and walk, be in the sun, all this stuff. Hers was like stay home or, you know, always have a mask on or wipe down everything. You know, you got to disinfect the world. And she got it. Now this is totally this the popular the sample size is is nothing it's two people uh and it's really meaningless in statistics but it's just ironic that the one who stayed so clean and protected themselves so well ended up getting the thing they didn't want to get as opposed to the person who didn't care if they got it or not and that just makes me believe that the mind you really don't know how powerful it is of what you think and what you say, because it really does manifest itself. So like, if you say like, Oh, you know, uh, like if you wake up in the middle of the night often, let's say, and you don't sleep well and before bed, you're like, uh, oh, man, I gotta go to bed early because I'm going to wake up at two in the morning. I hope I don't. Well, just by saying that you're going to wake up at two in the morning. You're literally setting yourself up to wake up at two in the morning. The fact that you said that means that it's coming from a subconscious place or there's something where all your brain or all your body was, we're waking up at two. We, you don't want to means you want to, otherwise you wouldn't say it. And I think the mind is like super powerful and I think we're going to learn a lot more. And I'm really just fascinated. Uh, in fact, this is why I learned uh, uh, last week. There's a new documentary. Um, it's a um, it's a really really good documentary. Actually, what's it called? It's uh, like Joe Dispenza's in it. Um, there's a. It's called. Um, I'll look it up while I'm doing this, and I'll, I'll let you know. It just it just debuted, but it's really really good. And here's um, one of the uh, takeaways was, I Joe Dispenza was he goes he goes. People who have been through, when they think about past thoughts and like, you know, when you talk about past experiences and what happened and if they were difficult situations or strenuous or whatever it is, when you retell that story in the future, whenever that is, that studies show that 50% of what you're saying about that event isn't actually true think about that isn't actually true our our we remember what we want to remember in the way we want to remember it and so everyone's going to remember things in their own way right like it's like nothing is good nor bad but thinking makes it so i love that quote i feel like no one else likes it 
I think it was Shakespeare who I never understood ever in school or anything. So I find it funny, but nothing is good nor bad, but thinking makes it so it's very much, you know, stoicism or being a stoic. Nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so things are as they are. And then if they're good or if they're bad is how we translate those things in, to us. And some people might translate something into something being good and something being bad. And the, uh, the thing, though, is objective. It's nothing. Um, and so you control your physiology. You control the way you feel. You, I, the best quote that I have heard in recent memory, and this wasn't that long ago, and I, this has changed my life. And I think this is incredible. And I think a lot of people can understand and relate. It's so simple. Ready? Mood follows action. Mood follows action. How many times have you said, you know what, I'm going to do this way. Oh, I'm not, when I feel, you know, really good, then I'm going to go, you know, do this, this thing, or uh, I'm not feeling it yet. Like, you know, but when I do, then I'm going to do it. Uh, you know, you're waiting for the feeling to come first to do the action. That's ne- very rarely are you, does that even work ever. But not, not only that, when you do the action, well, guess what? Your mood ends up improving. When you think like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm scared to, you know, go in public and be in front of all these people and blah, blah, blah. And then you go do it. And then you realize, oh my God, like, what was I worried about? In fact, like, this was great. I had like such a good time. Your mood follows the action. Like that shit is so profound. I, I, if you just wait until you feel the perfect way to then go execute, you're going to be waiting a long fucking time. But if you do, if you just do, okay, I guarantee if those things you're doing are helping people, are doing good, are pursuing something you're authentically passionate about, that you really truly care about or that means something to you in some way and that you're kind to others along the way, that this crazy thing is going to happen, that shit's going to work out and it's going to be reciprocated. And it's going to come in much more than it goes out. Like you would think intuitively, the more you take, the more you get in life. Because the more you take, oh, you just build up everything. That's an absolute falsehood. And I think a lot of everyone knows that. But the more you give in life, the more you get. It's it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense, right? The more you give away, you would think you would lose more. The more you give in life, the more you get. But what's more profound than that is like making small incremental changes and habits like, you know, doing a gratitude journal, which scientifically is proven that uh, it has as much of an effect as an antidepressant does at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, uh, in fact, 85% of the people who just wrote three things down that they were grateful for every night versus people uh, who took an antidepressant, uh, the, uh, they, they both leveled out their depression. Uh, and it was, um, it was uh, severe depression, or uh, uh, I forget the right terminology, but severe depression. And um, how long does it take to write three things you're grateful for? Um, well, I could tell you uh, about... I don't know, three minutes or so. And 
Does do most people do it? No. Um, in fact, if you start doing it, do I believe that you'll be doing it every single day for the next 90 days? No, I bet you don't even do it every single day for two weeks. But it's it's proven that if you do it, you have a greater likelihood of feeling better, of being happier, of then becoming more productive, of then all this good stuff happening, but yet you choose not to do it. It's a choice. Everything is almost, especially for everyone that's listening to this, but let alone, you know, especially in America and like, like, like where we're so fortunate to be, if, if you are in America, I'm guessing you are, or just, you know, if you're able to listen to this, you're most likely not in the worst position in the world where there are people that can't get out of situations because of certain, you know, corrupt government systems in Africa and stuff like that. Like there's really messed up stuff going on, which I've also recently learned about with the Bitcoin conference in, in Miami of that there are hundreds of millions of people living in circumstances that are totally not right and are totally not fair. And, uh, you know, the idea of crypto solving that is, is really cool and neat and, and it could happen, I'm sure. But I was just fascinated, like, oh my God, like when I see someone complaining that their Uber's late or like that, you know, their Lyft took the wrong turn, like, shut the fuck up. Like, you do you understand? Like, people can't even, like, they live on a dollar a day and they can't get out. They're just controlled in this, like, system. I, it, it's really sad. It's really, really sad. And if you have the opportunity to have the freedom to pursue whatever is authentically true to you, meaning what you genuinely, genuinely love, okay? And that's your art. That could be any type of art. And when I say art, that doesn't just mean music or writing or, uh, you know, media. It means maybe you like coaching, right? Maybe you like um, teaching. Uh, so therefore you create courses. You know, maybe you're, uh, all your years of experience doing financial modeling, you're an Excel whiz, and you, uh, um, you know, you can create temple-sized ways of doing cash flow statements. There's a million things. It's just, what are you passionate about? And then, like, if I say I'm passionate about sports and I'm obsessed with the Cleveland Browns, right? I'm not going to be an NFL football player. That's not going to happen. I'm like a five ten. Uh, 175 pound, like just white Jew, like it's just not going to happen. And that's cool. But what can you do that is around this thing that you love that you can do? You can monetize things in a million different ways. It doesn't have to be directly like, oh, NFL, you got to be athlete. No, maybe you work in the front office, you know, maybe you end up doing operations on the business side, or maybe you get into scouting. Um, it, there's a whole variety of ways to, to earn a living around the subject matter that you love. And I think that people dismiss it so quickly and so quick, so fast that it's a, it's a, not only a missed opportunity, but the longer it's missed, 
even if you're 50, it's fine. 60, 70, getting there. 80, when you're 80 and you say, oh, you know, I should have, or oh, I could have started. Oh man, I, I wish I, like, you're not getting that back. Like, don't you want to minimize the amount of regret you're going to have in your life? Like, don't you want to do, like, sure, there might be a high risk of starting a new venture or a new company, just as an example. But even if it fails, you're never going to have to look back and say, what if I, no, you did it and it didn't work. That's a lot more satisfying than having it be unknown in perpetuity. And the creator economy mixed with Web3, which is crypto decentralization, is what's created this opportunity at a massive scale that is going to change the way we work as a global society. And let me explain. And let me explain why it's so important. You have every ability to make an income working for yourself, being hyper-specialized in whatever it is that you want to do, that you love to do, and that you're good at. Don't forget that part. You got to be good at it. You can't just love something and suck. But if you want to, let's say, write about um, the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, okay, the NBA team, that's pretty niche. Milwaukee's not a big city. Um, you know, uh, doesn't have the largest fan base. It's not like the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I'm using a lot of sports references. Um, maybe you want to go more niche and you just cover, you know, Giannis. They're 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 superstar, right? And you po you write something every day about you know you know his night, your analysis of that game, whatever it is, right? And you put that on, let's say, Substack. Okay, and you put it, then you distribute on LinkedIn and on Facebook, and you become the expert on this one superstar in the NBA. Well, when people, when something comes up, like anything in the media, a trade with his, anything about him, who do you think everyone's going to turn to? The market will come to you. And if you are good, which I believe to be good, you have to authentically enjoy it. Um, you're going to be able to create a, a, a good, I mean, it's the thousand true fans philosophy. If you, if you believe that, I mean, Kevin Kelly, if you haven't read it, a thousand true fans, look at Google it right now. 1000 true fans by Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is the founder of wired. Um, he is a very interesting thinker. Uh, and 12 years ago, which is mind blowing, he wrote this piece called a thousand true fans. And it's since been iterated in the past couple of years by another incredible writer named Lee Jin L I. And their last name is J I N of uh, variant fund who, uh, used to be with a 16 Z or entries in Horowitz. Um, and in, in hers is called, uh, instead of a thousand true fans, try 100. And what is a true fan? A true fan is someone who would drive an hour to come eat dinner with you or who would pay 15 bucks to come, uh, you know, see you talk or, um, you know, 
pay twenty dollars for your ebook, uh, or you know, pay you hourly to help consult that someone who would pay for whatever you provide because they value it that much or have that connection with you and that direct connection with you, which is also very important and has never been able to be possible in the past where you can have a direct relationship with your community. And if you have a hundred true fans, or if you're looking at the article, which is was a thousand true fans, his whole thing was on this entire internet. Okay. There are billions of people on the internet. Now don't forget there are, billions, definitely over a billion people that aren't even on the internet yet that will be in the next five years. Okay. Just by sheer law of large numbers, there are a billion people that aren't even on the internet that will be. Okay. So it's quality subjective. Some people are going to like some stuff. Some people are not going to like some stuff. That's just going to be the case. You're not the dictator of what's good and bad. The market will decide. Okay. You just put it out there. What's measurable is consistency is 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 how often you do the number of times now quality that's a subjective measure so whenever someone says ah this isn't good enough to, to you know to put out there like this isn't good enough to put out there. like who are you first of all you're not even your own customer second of all who are you like the eye of the beholder for everybody like what, what are you the, the ultimate judge and jury of of all types of art like who the fuck are you like that's ignorant no, you put it out there and let it see the light of day. And maybe it is bad and no one does like it, but then, you know, and guess what? I bet you of many of those times you put something that's not good enough out. It's going to end up being one of the most popular things that people love the most. You just don't know. You don't know. But what you do know is that you can put out something. You can create content on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, or if you want to be more like um, Stratechery, for example, Ben Thompson writes uh, Stratechery.com easily. Well, I, it is the top newsletter, I believe, but easily one of the best tech business technology newsletters, Stratechery. Um, and uh, he's very much about the ownership economy. So uh, what that means is, is that he doesn't want to be on any particular platform. And so, because you could be deplatformed or monetization. And so he owns every part of the tech stack and, uh, you know, has distribution on the Spotify's and, and the, the um, you know, sub stacks and, and reviews, but has self-hosted like ghost, um, you know, ghost.org, which is, you know, uh, owned by you um, and has a decentralized audio uh, platform and all that stuff. But the point is, is that creating is one thing, but having ownership and complete autonomy of your earnings and what you've rightfully earned without any, um, without any uh, fear of it being taken away unfairly or just being, you know, stored somewhere and then going to get it one day and it's not there, like in Argentina when, you know, all of a sudden, one day, you know, the government just took 50% of like everyone's money and that was it. It was just gone. You now can create and then be the custodian of all those receipts of, of, of that money. And that's with crypto. That's not with Stripe. That's not with Shopify. That would be through a crypto medium. Now, are we there yet for, 
um, a regular day person to access these Web3 platforms like Mirror.xyz or do these microtransactions. No, no, it's way too much friction. But the internet was built funk, like the internet was built incorrectly. And what I mean by that is it was it was made without a payment rail, a native payment rail. Think about that. The internet is one of the biggest employers in the world, I guess you could say, right? So many people earn a living off of the internet in some way, shape, or form, except there was no native monetization uh, protocol that was created like SMTP was for sending and receiving emails, which then Gmail is on top of and Yahoo Mail and all these different services. There's no payment. It wasn't until Stripe, which is not that because Stripe is a private company who can do whatever they want and they own their system, just like Shopify and Amazon. Um, They built their own and a lot of people use it because it's so easy to implement into almost any system, especially Stripe, right? You can use it easily integrated on, I think, every tool like I've ever used and it's easy, right? But Stripe doesn't allow certain transactions or they have certain terms and policies and terms of conditions and, and whatnot. And that is totally up to them. But if you have the ability to receive payments and you are also the intermediary and you're the recipient, well, my God, I mean, that is, that's really profound if you really think about it. Like that means that all you need is your direct fans, your direct, whatever, consumers, people who are just, interested in whatever you have to say or are sharing and that could be a a whole wide range of things and what will blow your mind is this this will blow your mind i guarantee you that if you i bet you think you're i've come to learn that people's inner voices are really mean and are not nice to them like for example they'll say be like oh you like you're going to do that? Like you're in a voice says stuff like that or like, no, you suck or this isn't good enough. Mine's like delusionally optimistic and which I guess is a blessing and kind of a, not a blessing as well. Um, but I didn't know that everyone had all this negative inner voice talk and it prevents the action because it holds you back, right? Like, oh, this piece of art's not good enough. Nobody's going to like it. I guarantee you, if you go opposite of that negative inner voice, Okay. You go opposite of that fear. Okay. Literally, you know, it's uncomfortable. You know, it's the opposite of what you intuitively want to do. You put something out there, you will be, well, you'd be surprised because you would expect that, oh, no one's going to like this or whatever you're talking about putting out that actually 10 people are going to reach out to you and be like, this was so helpful to me, or thank you so much. Or, you know, uh, can I schedule a call with you? Or can I talk to you more? Like, to find a hundred people on the internet, on the World Wide web, okay, that are interested in what you're doing. Like if you like to draw red birds with blue eyes, okay, that's pretty niche, right? And let's say you only use crayons, okay? Guess what? There are at least a hundred other people in this world connected to the internet that are obsessed with red birds drawn with crayons and blue eyes. You don't think so. But put it out there and you will see very quickly that that, is, that exists. 
you're nobody is alone in what they like nobody is alone with what their niche is like there is absolutely another person somewhere in this world that wants whatever you are creating whatever that might be i guarantee it now to have the resilience and the patience to wait until that person finds you or you become discoverable that's a different ball game because that takes you being so um uh at least not humble but more you more introspective of like you know what you're trying to achieve you know what you're doing and you don't care about your follower count you don't care that nobody liked the image that you just posted like you don't care because you know what you're doing isn't is for the long run and is in the best interest of what you want to get out of life and the life that you want to live and i think there's only a few universal truths in this world um and I got this from The Psychology of Money, a book I really would strongly recommend reading by Morgan Hazel. Hazel. Psychology of Money is a really, really, really good book. And he writes something like um, there, that people, what people want most, no matter where you're from, no matter what you do, what people want most in life is to do what they want as much as they want when they want to do it. AKA people want to be able to control their time and be able to have the flexibility to spend time with their kids. If that's what they want to do right now, they, they don't want to be told what to do. People want to control their own time. And I do think that's a universal truth. I do. And to control your own time requires some discipline, right? Because for example, you never know, everything's out of your control except your thoughts and your actions. So you could have a job, you could lose it tomorrow. It's possible. Uh, you know, everything, it, it could be far-fetched, but a lot of these outside factors can happen, okay? But you can be either better prepared for it or not prepared at all. And so like, for example, saving. Like I'm personally not I was never one to save. I, you know, big live in the moment, like, you know, spend money now. Uh, I don't like extravagant things or, you know, Gucci bags or things. That's just not my thing. Um, If anything, I like experiences. So I'll pay for trips and stuff like that. But I never had a reason to save. But what he says is you don't need a reason to save because what it's doing is if you're saving, okay, then what happens is, is that you increase your optionality in the future for the more you save now. And that could be because, let's say you go into a recession and you have a year of runway to live off of. Well, instead of just taking the job that's available to you right now because you need the income, but you hate that job, you can have the patience to wait until the opportunity that you actually want comes across because you had the discipline to save for the unexpected things that are going to happen. The black swan events like Nassim Tlaib, which is also an outstanding book. Um, and for every, for, for every, um, basically for every hour or for, uh, for every amount that you don't save now is, and is time in the future 
that will be controlled by somebody else. Meaning you won't be able to choose what to do, when you want to do it, how often you want to do it, et cetera, et cetera, because you're going to have someone else, a boss telling you what to do. So saving, you don't need to save for a car a particular reason. You could save just for the fact of, I want to have control of my time in the future. And it's never been easier to get to that point because while you're doing what you're doing that you may not like, well, at the same time, you could put in a little bit extra and, you know, maybe it's that you like to, you know, draw cartoons or something like that. Well, create a newsletter and send out cartoons to your friends. You know, if it ends up being good, it will get shared. It will rise to the top and you will be able to monetize in the future. But you have to first discover what you truly fucking care about. Like what, like this is, this whole rant is really meaningless. If you cannot figure out what is true to you and what you want to do. And that is a very hard thing to do. I'm not trying to make it sound easy because self, because we're programmed in society to, you know, be a certain way to do certain things. And, you know, like, you know, at least how I grew up, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you go to school, you go to college, you get a major, you go work for, uh, you know, an accounting firm and that's success. And then, you know, I did that and I realized, holy shit, I hate this. This is the opposite of success. This is like hell. Like, oh my God, like who wants to, hey, no offense if you work for like PwC or anything, but that shit just was not for me. Um, thank God I was in Bermuda. That was, that was, that was good. It was cool living on the water at 22. But these like preconceived, like at 18, asking someone, hey, what do you want to be the rest of your life? That is a awful question to ask a 30-year-old, in my opinion. And like definitely in your 20s, that person should not know. They should not care to know. And they've barely tasted anything in this world. Like don't ask an 18-year-old what they want to be when they're older because they're not supposed to know, but yet they're supposed to be okay with taking out $150,000 in debt and then come out of school with a degree and something they didn't even like, and then not be employable because they don't like what they do. And then they're being called, you know, they're the ones that are worthless or living at home with their parents. And then they, it's just, it's just, you can't get out of it because then you got to pay the debt and all this stuff. It's really messed up. Like these things that we think are right and the way to do things are very often wrong. Like they are not wrong, but they're very often, um, don't lead to the outcomes that are promised. And like what you're seeing with millennials is really interesting, which is, <laughs> it, but the, the story gets shaped differently. <laughs> it's funny how this happens, but millennials now buying a house, buying a house is a bad investment. Okay. It's not a smart investment. 90% of the time. Okay. But if you're buying a house to raise a family and you're going to live in it, uh, like for example, my dad's lived in this house for 30 years that it's not an investment. That is an asset. That's a, you know, it's a, it's a quality of life, right? Um, with, a, with as low as interest rates are, it makes zero sense to pay off your mortgage in full, right? So if you're getting it at 2% and 
and you can go make 6% off, you know, the S&P or something like that, or anything over 2%, well, you should obviously then take that money and go invest in and earn that, that arbitrage return at 4%, whatever it might be. And that would be the smarter, strictly financial decision. However, people want to pay off their homes. And is that a bad decision? Well, on a spreadsheet, you cannot make, you cannot justify it on a spreadsheet. But humans are not spreadsheets. We're emotional creatures. We are very emotional creatures. In fact, that's why all these decision, decisions are made with investing and stuff. And which, by the way, taking advice from someone else about financial stuff is such a dumb idea because their goals and what you want could be totally fucking different. Like of what you want to get out of life versus what they want to get. But you're going to take their advice like, Oh, wow. You know, oh, Bill Gates. Well, must, I should just listen to him. Maybe he wants totally different things than you do. Like, did you ever think of that? Like, do you want what he has? Like, exactly? I, I don't know. Maybe you do. But like, you got to think about, like, you got to be insular. You got to think about your yourself. And and what what really just just blows my mind is you hear so much about how people want to help the world, help so many people, yet they're not even comfortable with themselves or even know what they want to do with their life or, uh, you know, even have the self-awareness to be happy yet they want to help all these other people. Why? Because it's going to make them feel good. But this goes back to what I said earlier, which is mood follows action. It's not action. It's not action follows mood. If it was action follows mood, then everybody would be thriving because, we wait until we're in the perfect state to do that perfect thing. And that never happens. That never happens. You do, and then you get the results, and then you iterate. You do, you get the results, you iterate, you get better, you get better. The more you do it, the better you get. It's just how it works. I mean, it's it's not that profound, but it's an often very overlooked uh, uh, variable uh, in people's quote unquote overnight success, which is my favorite, which is most people's overnight successes are 20 years in the making. Um, I think, I think what it all boils down to is um, people's relationship with poor relationship with time, to be honest. I think that we vastly overestimate the shit we can get done in like a week, definitely like a day, definitely probably a month. But we vastly underestimate the shit we can get done in five years. Like almost every single person I talked about what they could do, you know, these targets in, you know, 30 days, they are ludicrous and they're very rarely hit. You know, if it's a direct, uh, um, you know, let's say it's a a metric, a number. But when they say, what are you going to achieve in four years? They underestimate by a mile what they're going to do. And last time I checked, five years, 10 years is not that long of a time. It's not that long. It goes by really fast. And it, it, it's, so, it's so easy. It's, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not so easy. But I believe that it's a lot easier than people make it out to be, which is getting whatever it is that you want, scratching your own itch, getting the outcomes you want in life is a result of all 
like in Atomic Habits with James Clear, which is a great book, is these incremental improvements that you make on a daily basis, the small things like making your bed in the morning every single day, no exception. Like, it, so I'll just tell you my, my, my schedule. So make the bed every single day. Uh, first thing when waking up, get outside and walk for 20 minutes. So sunlight, because that starts your circadian rhythm. It gives you like a 16 hour clock. And therefore, you know, you'll probably go to bed at an appropriate time because I'm a night owl. And uh, you want to be in the sun right away. Um, I also have a juve. So sometimes because sometimes the weather's not nice here, I'll get in front of the infrared light and things like that. Uh, these are not negotiable, by the way, for me. I do that. Then afterwards, I, I do journaling, uh, which is the quote unquote spiritual uh, windshield wipers, I guess they say, uh, which is, you know, hey, it's proven to work. So I'm just doing it. I journal for five minutes. After that, I read the Daily Stoics entry for that day, whatever that quote is, um, which takes like a minute. And then, um, and then after that, I will have celery juice. Um, I make fresh celery juice every morning. Um, I don't know if it really does anything, to be honest, but uh, it's, it definitely makes you do something, and you could figure that out if you uh, try taking it. Just stay close to a bathroom. Um, yeah, stay really close to a bathroom if you've never done it before. <laughs> um, and then I get on with my work day. And uh, at night, uh, I do the sauna. I do a sauna for 30 minutes where I sweat my face off. Um, there's tons of – oh, yeah, yeah. And also in the morning, I do a cold plunge as well. Not sure if that does anything, but um, I'll take a shower and at the end, ice cold for 30 seconds, a minute, however long, like ice cold. I've gotten pretty good um, with the breathing techniques behind that. Um, uh, not with Wim Hof, but, but some other ones. Um, other side is a good app for, for breathing exercises. Breathwork's a good one. Um, uh, I believe it's called Stoic, actually, I think was my favorite one. And then Sam Harris's is pretty good too. Um, breathing exercises control 90% of your physiology, just so you know. It's the most powerful thing. Um, I really want to read the book uh, by James Nestor called Breath. Uh, it's supposed to be phenomenal. Um, but anyways, uh, breathing can change everything. Uh, celery juice and then um, the sauna at night, which sauna has proven to yeah, – there's an, um, some amazing videos and studies coming out of uh, – um, coming out of uh, uh, Finland, I believe, about sauna use and the, how it's decreasing uh, the chances of Alzheimer's, dementia, um, uh, cardiovascular issues, like, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's dosage dependent. So the more you actually do it, uh, the better it is. Um, so fascinating. Um, after that, uh, shower, because you stink or I stink. And I do a foot bath of um, uh, with uh, magnesium salt, like, uh, and then I put lavender in the uh, diffuser or whatever you call that thing that makes the room smell nice. Make it lavender. Put uh, you know magnesium salt in the water. Soak my feet. Do that for thirty minutes, and then bef uh, before ten o'clock, I 
do not see, I do not look at any light. You don't want to look at any, every light. If you look at light after 10 p.m., you are directly inhibiting the quality of your sleep. And the quality of your sleep is absolutely going to result in the quality of your overall health because there is absolutely nothing, not diet, not exercise, not anything that is more important than sleep. And there's this great book, Why We Sleep, um, by uh, Matthew Walker. Uh, you could just search Matthew Walker on the Knowledge Project. He was interviewed, um, and I he was on Joe Rogan, some other some other uh, big podcasts. Um, but why we sleep, and it's just in the past five years we've made these remarkable discoveries that pretty much anything that is going on, like hormonally or uh, emotionally or mentally, um, is a result of sleep, a lack of sleep, or a quality of sleep. And then that then makes your gut health off or unhealthy and everything stems from the gut. So like, for example, if you have acne on your face, like I'm 32 years old, I still have damn pimples on my face. I can't stand it. That's gut health. And um, it really does affect everything. In fact, I went through this crazy thing um, a little over like six months ago. Um, it's like hokey pokey ish, but um, it's called NYCIM, New York Center of Innovative Medicine. And basically it's this uh, uh, like world renowned anesthesiologist, but now is not, he's a board certified anesthesiologist, but he does his own little concoctions like to get rid of Lyme disease and stuff, which I realized I had after 14 years, um, which I wouldn't wish upon anyone. Always tired and all that stuff, and basically did these crazy practices of like put it, circling my blood through UV light and putting it back in me, supposedly killing all the stuff. Uh, you know, uh, all IV, just really strange energy based stuff. I would wear like uh, amograms or whatever you call them that like uh, you know protect you against the five G, <laughs> all this crazy stuff, and it's hokey pokey, but it works. It works. And so all it's made me think is my whole life, like if someone, you know, was a naturopath, a doctor versus, you know, like an allopath, a doctor, I, like if they didn't go, if they weren't an MD, I would just dismiss them right away. And now as things are unfolding as of like later, or maybe it's just as I, you know, getting older, it's almost as if everything that is made out to be weird or hokey pokey or wrong. Now, some of it is, but a lot of the times I feel like it's the right answer that has been manipulated into being the wrong one for the purpose of some, you know, other business or, you know, kind of like a political reason or something like that. And that's really, really interesting. I mean, the counterculture almost seems to be the culture in a lot of ways. It's a little weird, hard to articulate, hard to articulate. Um, and very hard to do a, like a monologue too, by the way. Um, that's why, I mean, yeah, that's why it's tough to do a podcast. Um, by the way, if anyone, anyone wants to, or, um, is know someone involved in the creator economy 
um, you know, Web3 doing some cool stuff and wants to be on the podcast in case you forgot the ownership economy and promote your stuff. Like, let's have a conversation. It'll be awesome. Um, that's what I'm focusing on now is doing that podcast. Um, and so, uh, and I, so I put out like six episodes and I think they all suck. Um, I think they're awful. I don't think they bring any value. And I've gotten over 40 messages from people I know and don't know saying, Oh my God, this is great. This is so helpful when you put out more. And it's like, if I would go by my gut, which was don't put this out, it sucks. No one's going to listen to it. If I did that, I would have been absolutely wrong because it still blows my mind that like, you know, in the last two weeks, like this just started, but you know, something little like zero subscribers. I'm trying, I'm trying to prove the Kevin Kelly thousand true fans thesis. Um, while, um, while documenting my journey of learning about that, if that makes sense. So like the purpose of my podcast is to educate everybody on the ownership economy, you know, on the intersection of no code, creator economy and crypto, right? That intersection right there, uh, which I call the ownership economy and how everyone can, you know, benefit from this if they choose to. Um, and while on this journey, interviewing, you know, the top people, creators, investors, all that stuff, I'm literally on the journey learning myself. I'm just documenting it. And it just happens to be in podcast form. And I'm just putting my conversations out there. They're just authentic conversations. And I don't think they're good. And you get great feedback. People are good. You get unbelievable feedback and it'll blow your mind. Like whatever you think about the quality of your work, you're pr- unless you, if you think it's bad or it's not good enough or it's not perfect, whatever, whatever that work is, you're most likely wrong. Now you might be right and maybe you do suck at whatever it is you're trying to do, but most likely there are absolutely a hundred people on the internet that would love whatever it is you produce or create. There's no question. There is no question. And I don't care how weird you think your thing is. You're in a group of thousands of those weirdos because that's the way the world works. Nobody is alone in what they like, no matter how niche. And in fact, the more niche you are, the more, uh, you know, the more uh, true fanish, I guess I'll say, the fan will be. Um, and the bigger advantage you have, it's better to have a community of a thousand people with 900 engaging on a regular basis than uh, 4 million followers and, you know, 3000 people like, you know, giving you a comment like, okay, cool. looks like, wow, 4 million, all these people, but it's not about, it's not about the absolute number of people who are partially paying attention to you. Cause if it's 4 million people, it's not full-time attention. However, if you're the best at drawing red birds with blue eyes, with crayons, and you have people following that, well, that's going to be hell of an engagement because there's really nowhere else to engage. And there's no one else that had the audacity to uh, start putting that out there with the hopes that someone would find it and also like the same thing. So whatever it is you like, no matter how weird, how kinky, however, whatever, 
there's someone else out there. There's many people out there. There are many, many more than you'll ever believe that are the exact same way as you. And if you're the one that chooses to create it or to distribute it or to put it out there and take that risk, you know, thinking you're the only one that likes what it is that you're going to put out and you do it, well, you're going to be the recipient of all the rewards of having the bravery and the courage of doing that. And um, that's not to say it's a rush. That's not to say it's just saying that inner voice that gives you fear, that makes you feel fear, is a bunch of bullshit. It really is. And I swear to you, if you choose the opposite of whatever your internal fear tells you, I actually think you'll make the right decision 100% of the time. 100% of the time. I mean, I, it's crazy. Like the fact that there is, the fact that I'm not in this room alone is literally proving the point that there are people interested in boring, weird, you know, people like myself that, you know, are trying to provide value, but probably not. Um, But, you know, I'm trying to play my role and and do a little bit and maybe be a little bit entertaining. Um, You know, I don't know. I'm just trying to, I want to help out a little bit. And the only thing I know about is no code, Web3, and the creator economy. I literally consume and know nothing else uh, besides the Cleveland Browns. And so I feel like I have an obligation to educate on those three things. Um which culminate to the ownership economy. Um, I wonder if it, has anyone heard of the ownership economy before? Is it the first time you've heard it? First of all, I have all the gratitude in the world for everyone who's been on this call in and out or just in like, thank you for being even a part of this room and being a listener like that means the world, like literally. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, I think I'm going to wrap up now. Um, if anyone has any questions or anything or anything they want to put in the messages or come talk, let me know. I'll, I'll give it a little bit and I'll invite you up here. I would love to hear what you guys have to say. I think you could write something in the messages or, um, it might disconnect me. Shoot. Why do I do that? Uh, Hold on. If you guys are doing something, it's uh, I'm not seeing it yet because my phone's like freezing. Okay, there we go. Are there any messages? Any raising hands? Anybody? I'll do a thumbs up. If anybody wants to talk, I'll give it 60 seconds. If not, I appreciate all of you. Charlie, Stream Bean. It says plus four others. I can't see who they are. But thank you to everyone. If you do want to learn more about the ownership economy, you can go to ownershipeconomy.substack.com. Pretty straightforward. Spelled at like, you know, ownershipeconomy.substack.com. You can also, you'll be able to act, you'll see all the YouTube videos. You'll see all the, the podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, all the platforms. Or if you just, um, and it's really cool actually, if you uh, use Spotify, um, you can actually watch the videos of the podcast in Spotify. Uh, uh, we were one of the like the earliest uh, beta users. Um, 
again, just to plug it, um, it's In Case You Forgot, The Ownership Economy. Uh, that's the name of the podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you could search Jonathan Kogan, which is me. Um, and uh, we'll have a new episode come out tomorrow. The last one was with uh, David Peterson, who was the 16th hire at Airtable um, and the first growth head of growth hire and um, was employee number 16, no revenue at Airtable, a no-code database. And four years later, uh, had uh, was 600 people worth $6 billion and basically grew it into the no-code darling it is today, which is worth like $6 billion. And it's a really cool story. Now he's a venture capitalist at Angular Ventures, um, which is a really unique uh, VC fund, by the way. Uh, they are a first check-in fund, Angular Ventures, um, particularly for European and Israeli uh, B2B SaaS companies. But they will invest pre-seed and even pre-incorporation. Uh, they'll they are when they say first check-in, like they are first check-in, and um, uh, he um, he also has a great medium uh, blog to read. Um, in fact, one post I will shout out is I would definitely search. Um, uh, you could search on Medium, uh, E. David Peterson for the name, but it's uh, uh, No Code Operations is the Job of the Future or something like that, I believe. Um, maybe I can put it in here, but it's awesome. It's a fantastic read. And there's also Founders Hiding in Plain Sight, which is um, another unbelievable one. Let's see if I can put it. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. I hope that was valuable in some way and um, have a great rest of your day, evening, morning, wherever you are in the world. Um, and again, if you ever want to reach out, um, you can just go to ownershipeconomy.substack.com. You can send me an email or you can go to anchor.fm backslash JSK. I think the links are above here somewhere. Uh, and or the YouTube channel um, would love to get anyone's feedback. Um, and uh, next time, don't be shy and say some stuff. Uh, thank you all. Love you all. And uh, have a great rest of your day.